0: So I was thinking earlier today. Uh, I was just walking up here. I was trying to get my daughter out of the uh, my home office. She's about uh, well, she's going to be three next month. In a few weeks, we better get started planning her birthday. Just uh, that's that's a pro tip right there. But I was thinking, you know, she's at that stage where almost everything she does she announces. Like, I'm going to go get my book watching Frozen, you know, like, I've got poop. And and I, I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of computer services like that. I mean, that's basically how like UDP and multicast works, right? Is you've got all these things in your big distributed system, and they just tell you every time they have poop in their diaper and everything mm-hmm. that's going on. And, and there must be some name for that, like broadcast everything style. More interestingly, there must be a name for the uh, I guess, I guess it would be a pull mechanism. It only tells you something if, you, if you want to know. I guess that would be SNMP. You've got the traps in SNMP, which broadcast everything out, but you do have to explicitly subscribe to them. Whereas with my daughter, there was no message sent about subscribing to her, uh, her diaper, uh, notification service. I guess that's implicit in being a parent. It's kind of defaults that are set in your configuration. But there must be some name for the, uh, the situation where, uh, broadcasting is not done. The, the mum, broadcast paradox or, or something. That's right. It's like big kid data.
1: You're just a lot of volume. That's and right. And a variety coming in there. I know there's no filtering out this. You know, we ask our systems now to tell us more and more. And unless you have systems on the other end reading it, you just get, you know, dumped this way too much data. It's like, not now, Slack. Stop telling me so many things. Ugh. Just relax. So. I know our systems are very chatty, just like our children.
0: S- Slack has this one thing that drives me crazy, which is like there's no way to turn off the uh, the at here at channel thing, right? Like it's, <laughs> right. And, and I and 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 like like any system where uh, it's any, I I think, I think there's probably some rule that also has some principle of law or or theory behind it that if there is a mechanism in a a group uh, listening situation by which you can get everyone's attention, it will be abused. It's just like, that'll happen. So it, it almost seems like that channel and hear thing is a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a misguided, uh, feature to have. It's the well, opposite you, of what you want.
1: I saw you mentioning on Twitter this morning that if, uh, boy, maybe you could just do one thing at a time versus 50, maybe you'd be more productive. But I think we just Except the fact that continuous partial attention is our reality.
0: That's right. You've got to learn how to cope with it. That's, That's right. You know, this reminds me of another another highly related thing. I remember I was reading that, uh, how do you say it, Nassim Taleb guy. And mm-hmm. he, he said two paradoxical things, which I'm sure delighted him. He, he likes to be in a quad paradox situation constantly. But he he's essentially saying, you know, uh, hey, I made a lot of money uh, with arbitrage. So the following I am lucky enough to be able to experience just like, you know, you should just wander around and like eat really good meals and only like work about an hour a day and that'll work mm-hmm. out better. And yet paradoxically, he said he reads like 10 or 15 books at a time because he gets bored with them <laughs> and he's got to bounce between them. So there, there's, there's almost, there's uh there's silos of focus, I guess you mm-hmm. just got to figure out your, your situation. So, you know I was thinking of all this distributed stuff and and we'll get to this after our brief news thing but our our, our topic today was another another part in our uh, circle of code uh, mm-hmm. exhibition, going over the the uh, the spring cloud services, which are based on the netflix oss stuff, but it seems like what's becoming the the industry leading way to do microservices and all of the as we would say sort of day 2 operational stuff or even day 1 but all of the the uh, operation stuff around it as well which which we'll get to in the uh, the second half at your suggestion you're you're doing a good job driving our circle of code uh, agenda here
1: well, I'm just behind the scenes you
0: know you're the face of us <laughs> on the audio only podcast <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so with that, uh, you know, I think, I think the VM world is actually going on at the moment, like as we speak, I think it's the, the first day as we're recording, I, I really haven't caught up on it. It's not, you know, some people think that we're all in this federation and we have some sort of conspiratorial, like uh, Richard Ailes memo that's sent out mm-hmm. every day, but, uh, it's not the case. So we'll have to, I'll have to catch up on the news that's coming out of there, but, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, that it's happening and then i was i was reminded of this because of another item we have in here is uh i think it was last week the second half of last week or something that microsoft is getting powershell to run on linux which is a uh speaking of circles that's a fascinating full circle
1: yeah yeah it's it's wild stuff it's good you know amazon i think gave some powershell modules kind of their components and you know donating that and putting that in so it's open sourcing it's uh, it's widely available and you could ask if i'm a linux developer why would i pick this up and the answer may be you won't it may be you know live with your bash shell and you know your scripting and you're fine and you wouldn't use powershell if anything i was reading something else where Microsoft got asked to change the name of a couple packages because back when it was only Microsoft World, they used things like WGET and other terms that were Linux-based, but who cares because this was never going interla- to overlap. Now it does, and now you have these packages with the same name that shouldn't be using oh, right. that name. So it's just very funny now when you build systems and never expecting worlds to collide and probably joke about it. Now when they do, you actually have a little bit of a, a mess on your hands. So
0: yeah, I, Amusing, I,
1: but it's a good trend.
0: I, I forget what year it was that... Uh... I guess it was called Monad a long time ago that that, that came out. But I remember this is back when I was at Red Monk. And I, and I think I even did a video here and there, which has probably like disappeared into the nothingness of, of the Internet. But uh, it was uh, Jeffrey Snover who was architecting that. And, and he had been working at Tivoli for a long time. And I remember the uh, the story that he had is, is he basically, you know, among other things. Well, I think he's kind of like the head architect of their uh, server business or something now or some some highfalutin position. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's basically like part of what he was hired over is to like do this sort of like, hey, we should make Windows more Linux and Unix like. And I remember him telling me that the first thing that he spent a lot of time saying is that in, in the Linux world, people use the command line. (laughs) <laughs> right. There we go. Which you know, speaking of like a Zen presentation, that would have been a good single slide presentation for like a multi-day meeting, right? Like, you know, like what what does it mean to use the command line? And and naturally. I think, I think what, you, if, if you think about, at least the way that I think about PowerShell is sort of like the implementation of that in Windows land. And mm-hmm. I remember some of the first things were like, you know, you could, uh, you could basically do, uh, batch changes over multiple machines with PowerShell things and configure everything that you were sort of used to, uh, mucking around in a GUI for. And before that, like right around that time, thankfully, I' just been uh well i mean for this story at least, and I guess also for myself, but i'd been working at b m c on their like some of their windows monitoring stuff, so I had this weird passing understanding of like w m i and windows internals, and it was uh it was basically exposing all those windows internals to a uh to a command line interface which is which is pretty interesting and I think i mean you probably know better than I do at this point being more in uh in microsoft and and, and stack stuff, but like uh, yeah. I mean, it seems like PowerShell is like a full-on like like shell, <laughs> and and scripting no, language yeah. like way beyond even what I, I mean. If if you were to think about what the the command line and the shell in, in Unix and Linux are, and how like anything that's successful and decades old, they're kind of bound to the past. Like PowerShell is probably one of the newer, like complete reinventing of of what that that idea is and what you would want to do.
1: Yeah, they've done a nice job with a super powerful platform. That's where, again, I think the benefit you'll see is if I'm a Windows admin who now has these sort of Linux boxes in my purview, I don't have to necessarily completely shift my thinking. I can actually start pointing this at Linux boxes and doing things in my entire environment. So, you know, PowerShell is a first class citizen by Microsoft. But as you say, you're also dealing with an OS on a platform that traditionally has not been very CLI centric. It's been more point and click. So a new way of thinking, I guess I'll also promote the uh, blog post that we put out last week around Bosch for Windows and treating Windows as immutable servers. This is novel stuff. Treating a Windows box as something that you stand up, you tear down, and everything's cool versus stand it up, apply all these group policies, do all these other things. But that's a very new way of thinking. It was actually a really good blog post and goes into our thinking about what does it mean to do immutable Windows, which most people
0: have thought was pretty tough to do. Mm, immutable windows. That, that sounds like those windows we used to have in uh, the co-op I lived in college that you could never open. And uh, <laughs> you wanted had to be careful that you paid the extra for the AC if you were in one of those rooms. Can you imagine, like in the 90s, you could actually rent a college room in, in Austin, Texas without AC? I was thinking about that the other day. That's just insanity.
1: No, I, th- I I try to think of how my parents had jobs with cars with no air conditioning, and how did how did they possibly not get to work as a sopping mess? And it just a different world back then.
0: Yeah, it's clearly, clearly, you know, aside from the last thirty years, humanity was suffering for the the eons before that. I have no idea how it worked out; just all dumb luck. It proves that UFOs must have exist because they had to come down <laughs> and help us. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, related nothing to that, I guess. What's, uh what's what's this item about uh salesforce having an ai called einstein
1: yeah i mean they're working apparently going you know, to announce something coming up at their upcoming conference I, I think you know this jumped out at me it's an ai product called einstein and you, you can imagine you know it was light on details in terms of the stories but you can think about it. as you're doing complex crm and sales managing campaigns that there could be some value in doing machine learning or ai or bots or something as you're interacting with customers But this just seems to be this constant drumbeat that AI is starting to hit the masses among tech companies. You're seeing some of these things come in real life. Microsoft just bought some natural language and AI-type company last week that they might try to mix into office-based stuff. And again, if I'll plug something that I've enjoyed reading, uh, Jack Clark, former journalist for Bloomberg and Register, has an AI newsletter, which is really good. has some really good stories in there every week. And even if you're not in that space, I I can understand if you're deep in the bowels of an insurance company, you might not think about AI, but these are areas where it's probably good to just know what things are going on because this might be one of these things that bum rushes us and all of a sudden it's embedded into a lot of tech and a lot of libraries are available that all of a sudden you might want to know what's going
0: on. So it's a fun thing to keep an eye on. Mm, Watch out for the cyber bums. That's what you exactly. got. It. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always, I don't know, I guess a skeptic on AI stuff. Mostly just, uh, <laughs> not that it's not possible, but I'm always just curious what the the applications are. And it's like a lot of stuff that I'm skeptical on in the tech world. It's like uh, I'm more skeptical as a forcing function for like, why don't you talk about the practical things? And like, I can, I can think of one thing. I remember there's, I think it's like AI X, and it's some service you can sign up for. Uh, for like scheduling meetings and you just like CC them and they've got cutesy names. You can either get like Jane or John or something. And you can, you. So if, if we were to have a meeting, right? Someone's like, Hey, Kote, we should have lunch. And, and then I, I would, I would reply back to them and CC Jane or John and be like, Jane, can you schedule us lunch? And then it would like the AI thing, or it would sort of figure out like emailing back and forth to figure out where to go and when and everything. And like that, that would be kind of nice. And so, you know, I tried it a little bit and it's, it's, uh, it might be my problem, but it's the equivalent of like, I never want to use like a travel agent to book my travel. <laughs> right. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like, I have too many opinions and I want to tweak it too much. So maybe that's the issue, but just like yeah, and we have one of those uh, those Amazon Echo things, so every now and then we're telling Alexa stuff, but Alexa's not too bright. That's more like speech recognition. No, I know.
1: That's the thing is, I don't think we all... I finished a good book recently that was talking about the complexity of technology and, and one of these things that you can either fall into multiple camps, either you are just in awe of technology, which is a dangerous place to be. You need to understand what things are, or you can fear it, like you have to be Skynet, and that's not good. You need to have this sort of like healthy respect for tech, and even with AI... I think a lot of people just don't trust algorithms yet. I mean, I drove to Vancouver, British Columbia this last weekend from Seattle and, you know, I used my mapping technology and there still be times where you take some ridiculous looking route and it's just like ah, a stupid algorithm, you know, you just yell at it. I just don't think we have a lot of faith yet if we really had to put our entire trust in these things. That it's making all the right decisions and maybe we're yeah. getting there when we have self-driving cars and planes with no pilots but right now you know i still can't trust you know my hand going under the sink that it'll actually turn the water on i'm not ready to have a, a driverless car
0: yeah i mean, maybe maybe like mapping stuff i'm sure some some highly nerded out ai person would say that's not ai but like that feels like ai like i was uh to fill more anecdotes in here. I was I was using Waze the other day and uh you know I was I was going from one highway to the other that I drive all the time and it told me to go on the frontage road instead of the flyover. Uh and and I was like, "Well, that's stupid." So I went on the flyover and sure enough, there was a wreck on the flyover, so I just sat there for a long time. <laughs> right? And it was it's again, like that's that's not really like complicated AI that's going to go and like, you know, read about enlightenment and go sequester themselves off somewhere to talk with each other. But like, like it's, 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 it's pretty nice. (laughs) Right. Like that, even that level of, uh, of, of AI. We we could call it artificial compu- conclusions, just like helping me make conclusions would be nice that. Uh, you
1: yeah, know. Guys, we'll we'll keep seeing more machine learning. I think if you're any enterprise, this just drives an importance on making sure you're collecting good data, you're having figuring out ways to ask questions of it. And then at some point, maybe you can have things that make decisions based on it. But, you know, step one is if you don't have data, you can't train a model. AI is meaningless to you. Same with machine learning,
0: those sorts of things. Yeah, you got to edumacate them, right. get them learned up. Well, also uh, this week, uh, to to close out our new stuff a little bit, or this is last week actually, the uh, there was finally an announcement that Rackspace was going to be acquired. Mm-hmm. That which is to say, go private. I don't know much about the uh, Apollo Global Management LLC. Mm-hmm. I, in some article I read, they said that they also had bought the security company ADT. Which, uh, you know, not 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 to be all, you know, a scan side, but that sounds like the kind of thing (laughs) that you write when uh, you search in a database and you just plop that in a paragraph like of all the coverage. So I think it's like, uh, was it four point three billion that Mm -hmm. uh, they're they're being sold for? And of course, it's got to close and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, that was the thing I was most curious about is like, who are these Apollo people? Like, I know they can play a liar really good. But other than that, and they get really upset if you try to like, uh, you know, try to compete against them, they might skin you and hang you upside down on a tree. You got to watch out for that. But other than that, what's their deal? Um, Yeah,
1: I don't know if it is a shadowy finance group or they've all just have tons of good finance stuff. I think it was, you know, 4.3 billion is not selling for spare parts. So you are clearly identifying this as a very good asset that you plan on doing something with. I think that's going to be the interesting part is when. It's great they're private. They could probably be more focused on certain things now, but they've already shed some parts of the business. And the question is, how much of a leash do you have? You know, I think you and I have been through acquisitions. You know, many things sound great until certain things start to hit the fan. So hopefully things go fantastic for them as they double down on being a managed service provider across clouds and things like that. But from from my experience, you don't typically get a long leash or you know, a lot of time to, to show value when you have a... Uh, a impatient parent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, uh, on, on my other uh, podcast, software defined talk podcast, we talked about uh, this at length last week. And I also wrote up some little highlights over on my blog that I'll, I'll put in the show notes over at cote.io. But I think, you know, the, the only other notable thing I would say is, is uh, well, there's two things. One, uh, you know, we talked about the, uh, the I as magic quadrant a while ago mm. where, where rack space is in the, they're, they're high up in it, but they're kind of in the dreaded lower left-hand quadrant. Now that said, there's there's a managed cloud magic quadrant that they're the leader in so i think i think that's that's the way they've been repositioning themselves so they it depends what what uh, what glasses you look at them through and and also i mean it's i think i think pursuing that strategy seems to be uh, interesting and i think if you look at our our customer base like the idea of having a managed cloud seems to be very appealing, <laughs> right? Like like have, having someone take care of that for them, like I think most of the customers we have, uh, or at least that I talk with, would be quite interested in that in, in the preceding years. Uh, yeah, so, the so hard part is- the- to see.
1: Yeah, you like when it's managed, but then you don't like the lack of agility of, I just want to do stuff. I don't want to open a ticket with a managed provider. So there's always this weird place of, look, I'm trying to be more agile, but I'm still giving the keys to the kingdom, to someone who has great processes to operate lots of different customers. So yeah, I I don't know. The jury will be out there. Clearly, they make good money there, as do other managed providers. But is that the future in this sort of self-service automation driven world? I, I don't know. Yeah. It'll be interesting
0: to see. Yeah. you got to have a really fast ticket desk. That's, that's the innovation that needs to happen. So uh, just as a pointer, so I uh, I'll, last week I also point – I've, I've been working on trying to uh, – we get asked about uh, return on investment a lot, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. being an enterprise software vendor. And I took a, a first uh, drafty kind of rambly pass at writing up something there. I'll, I'll put a link to it, but I have it over on my, uh, my Medium blog. And hopefully sometime I'll write some what you might call professional versions of that instead of me kind of ranting about it. But I would be curious for uh, listeners for this, like when it comes to, and and as I define it in that piece, ROI basically usually means a lot of different things, not just a straight up return on investment. It's usually when someone asks for ROI to do agile or DevOps or cloud native or use a platform, what they're saying is help me justify spending money on this, (laughs) right? Like, Mm. and one way of doing that is to show that if I spend this amount of money and time, I will get a return on that investment and we will make profit from it which for something like agile is kind of weird to think about how you would do that it's sort of right. like you know what's what's the ROI on brushing my teeth every day it's it's sort of a long term there's no pivot table for that 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 right. has has a I short hope. time horizon right and that's a, let me take a note pivot table for brushing teeth uh anyways i'm i'm always curious to have people's realistic input on on how they how they in in their own business justifications have done roi and things like that because despite the fact that people are always asking uh for a spreadsheet to do it i my theory is that every single time it's something slightly different for mm-hmm. for something like uh for agile and and higher level stuff up the stack No, well, fair enough so so with that what's uh the the topic we have this week like I was saying at the beginning is to go over basically Spring Cloud services and Netflix OSS and and, and all of those things. So why don't you uh not you tee that up? Yeah, I mean this is to some extent self-serving since I've signed up to write a white
1: paper on Spring Cloud and Netflix OSS for Pivotal. I thought I'm going to road test some ideas with Cote and and our illustrious audience. So but it also fits clearly into our circle of code discussion. Thinking we talked what, last week, two weeks ago, about last week about project management or you know using Pivotal Tracker and this idea of how do you start to collect stories that drive your Agile work. And you know the next part of this circle. And if you get a chance to view Ansi, uh he's our VP of Engineering. His video on YouTube from the Pivotal kickoff earlier this year, or the one from Spring One, which was great. This idea of saying. Software development happens in a rhythm. It's not a one-and-done exercise. It's often about the idea through development, through testing and deployment, to collecting feedback, to incorporating that feedback. And you're constantly iterating in like a circle, as we love circle shapes. So one of the pieces of development is, you know, how am I accelerating what what I'm building here? And so the Netflix OSS group... Uh, if, you know, I don't know if anybody on this podcast does not know who Netflix is, but when you're talking about 80 plus million customers, many of those international 30 plus million now, you know, at peak times representing over 30% of network bandwidth in the in the country with people streaming. So they solve problems at scale that probably few companies see. And so when they they've been an Amazon customer for years, but you know, as the platform was still growing. And as their use cases were so edge in terms of their volume and their processing, they've built a ton of services and tools to help them operate at scale. And so they've open-sourced nearly all of it, obviously the stuff they talk about. And so they define Netflix OSS as this kind of layer for reliability, for processing, that helps them do the things they need to do at high availability. Anytime you read stories about, you know, Amazon US East 1 going down, Netflix is rarely ever impacted because they have simply built for a level of resilience that, frankly, I don't think many do. But what's interesting about all of this is, and Adrian Cockroft mentioned this at the, his Spring One keynote, is these are now solved problems. And so you have these questions or these decisions of, do I reinvent the wheel from things that, you know, Netflix processes billions of requests per, to you know per day through Zool and some of their, their edge stuff? Am I going to do better than that? Do I need to? And so they have some really cool tech that says, look, this has now been done. How do I use it? And then with Spring Cloud, we partnered with them, Pivotal, what, a year or so ago and said, let's let's make this stuff more consumable because I can go to the open source repo, download bits and run Eureka myself. I absolutely can do those things. We'll talk through some of these services. But should I be doing that? Is that the best thing to be fiddling with this for a few days? Or would it be great if I just add some annotations in my Spring Boot app, and all of a sudden I've got circuit breakers, or I've got things like that? So the idea of how do I operationalize and productize these libraries to make them just brain-dead simple to consume while still not losing any of the power, we've baked it into Spring Cloud, and then with Spring Cloud Services, those are the ones that run cleanly, natively on Pivotal Cloud Foundry, just with a button-click deploy out the config server, deploy out things like that. That's kind of the history and where some of this comes from.
0: So so then kind of starting from the top and then getting down to the components. There's basically well I don't know what top is. It's more like a chronology. <laughs> but there's there's so Netflix writes all this stuff to basically handle uh, their their big distributed uh microservices based application that allows us to watch videos and yep. you know all do in a, the cloud yeah, yeah and and you know that does a bunch of other stuff as well, and you know no one's no one's gonna get more upset than someone who uh just started to try to watch like uh what's that strange thing show and episode six doesn't come up so they need some resiliency uh or people are gonna get really pissed as it were and uh and 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 so they write all this stuff to be able to be a uh, a resilient uh, distributed system. And then, and then they decided they want to open source it whenever that is. And then, and then along comes, so you've got Netflix OSS and and they have a bunch right. of their own separate stuff. And then, so we have, uh, spring cloud, which mm-hmm. takes a lot of that stuff and probably some other things as well and sure. bundles it in a spring way that makes it on its own, just, uh, easier to consume by spring's opinion. <laughs> like, like that's, that's always, that seems to be a lot of what, uh, spring frameworks, people's, uh, ethos, I guess, is is always, is like, let's focus on getting maximum usability for this API uh, and and layer it around there. And then the next thing is that if you have Pivotal Cloud Foundry, the use of Spring Cloud services and therefore much of Netflix OSS is basically baked into and pre-configured and wired up in Pivotal Cloud Foundry so that you don't really have to spend much time at all, especially as a developer. Uh, setting it up or configuring it to work with each other. It just sort of works out of the box, if you will. Yeah, I mean, if the job is to bootstrap devs so that
1: they're writing the stuff that matters, right? Business logic, experience with customers, getting to do that faster, this sort of stuff, which is scaffolding, which is plumbing, super powerful plumbing, but it's plumbing nonetheless. You know, your customer should just see a resilient app. They're not going to ever see these services. These are something that help you stay online at all times or be durable, whatever. So I think it's that mix of saying, look, as a dev, if my job is to get into building awesome stuff first, then I don't want to necessarily have all this other bootstrapping of getting projects stood up, figuring out these libraries, standing them up somewhere. If I can just kind of have that baked into my frameworks, sometimes with opinions, so they're not as flexible, maybe as just doing it raw, I'm just getting to more meaningful work faster. And there's something to
0: that. So then uh, let's walk through, like, the components of it. Like, yeah. like what, what what makes up this thing?
1: Yeah, they've got a handful of categories. If you go to the uh, netflix.github.io, it's kind of their landing page for all sorts of projects. And they've got tons of categories, big data, runtime services, where we're going to spend our time, content encoding. You can imagine they've just got petabytes of content, data persistence, reliability, security. But when we look at kind of the, the Netflix OSS services we're thinking about, and again, for the layperson... The one you may have heard of is things like Chaos Monkey. Now, Chaos Monkey is kind of the famous one from Netflix. It just kind of turns off things within a particular area of the cloud for them. They just turn boxes off. And the premise is their system should keep working. So this is almost a test in production sort of service. It says, let me just go in there and randomly turn things off. And if I built my system correctly, that shouldn't impact anything. Things should be self-healing. Things should be discoverable. Now, I, I contend if you unleashed Chaos Monkey within most enterprise data centers, you'd probably shut the business down in four minutes. And that's just you know, the nature of how they've built apps. It's not necessarily, it, it just is. So they've also built some other chaos things in their family that turn off a whole region and things like that. And the idea is to really test resiliency, you've got to be able to lose components all over the place in ways you might not have thought of and prove that things work. Now there's no chaos monkey in Spring Cloud. It doesn't really have that same concept, but that's really the most famous of the Netflix services. When you get into the ones that are in Spring Cloud, uh, Spring Cloud Netflix and the more famous ones, so you have Eureka, if you've come across that. That is service discovery in this microservices world where you know instead of two monolithic apps, I have 400 microservices. The question is, how do I find stuff? for load balancing purposes or what have you, how do I know that the order service is here so I can call it? Now, there's also a whole school of thought that says, well, service discovery is, I don't like that concept anyway. I wish I just had a message bus that could pass messages and say, mm. hey, here's a new order, you do something with it. I don't want to look up an order service. I just want to have all these things hanging off a bus. And that that could be cool and that could work, but there may be synchronous examples where I need, like, give me uh, Cote's customer record. Maybe that doesn't go through a bus. Like there's right. reasons and, to know that's the service.
0: And 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 even in that case, you need some sort of directory that tells you how to get to the bus, right? Mm-hmm. Like like no one no one's born at the bus stop. Like you have to <laughs> you have to know like how to, how to locate yourself to it. And it is I mean that's you know going back to that's that's the uh, it's sort of the uh, my my daughter versus uh, people who don't tell you what they're doing model of of broadcasting versus looking things up. But and and right. so it seems to me I mean Eureka is basically a directory right like as right. as we used to call it in the J- the J E world i don't know what they call it in uh, in dot net land but you know there used to be like a uh, jndi and all that and like it's sort of like the first step to any uh, application that uses the network get a hold of the thing that tells you about other things mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 there's all sorts of like gymnastics you always go through it's it's almost like it's the uh, it's the prime mover thing of like you know who, who tells the network thing where, who, where the network is? Like eventually someone has to give you some information, but at least in general, in a, in, in a, in a larger system, you just go to something like Eureka or the directory to say, like, where's, where's my thing that does, uh, I don't know, that looks up what movie to stream or authorizes this customer or do this thing. And, uh, and that's kind of based now in, in, um, I'm no expert on all this stuff, but it seems like something that Eureka does that's slightly different than traditional directories is it has a fair amount of like health checks and monitoring built into it. So I guess maybe it's also a source of like, is this thing healthy or are there healthier ones that you could use?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of good integration with some of their other libraries that do things around, you know, other load balancing and circuit breakers. So Eureka is unique from just traditional, you know, Amazon Elastic Load Balancer, or their DNS service, because it also does local stuff. So there's a client and a server, if you will. So my web app actually pulls things into memory about where my different services are in the directory. And then mm-hmm. it can make local decisions about, well, let me route to here to here. And so there's some smarts that say, let's not just have a single point of failure on my registry either, Let's actually push some of that data to each client. They can make local decisions and then just refresh regularly. So a neat model. And again, Netflix builds these things because they don't see it in the core service. And then we all reap the benefit of
0: a more intelligent sort of ecosystem here. And, and this, this, this is one of those that's like, you, ultimately, you can configure it with like a Git repo or something, right? Yeah, I mean, pretty simple stuff. And this is
1: one that's also baked into Spring Cloud services. So if you're a PCF customer today, this is a button click. To get your your service discovery set up, so it's a little different than config server, which does you know use a Git backend and things like that for just config values. But when I do need to look up my stuff, uh, I don't remember all the backing stores for Eureka. But it's nice to have.
0: I think you have some choices there. And and then and then you know last item, it uh, sets the stage that there's going to be a lot of silly names for things. No, nothing nothing is named right. like some serious adult stuff. It's all it's all fun stuff.
1: Not with that many microservices. It's one thing when you get two services, right? You can go with some Lord of the Rings characters, but now you're going like B-side mm. when you get the 400 microservices to name these things
0: uniquely. You'd have to use the Simpsons naming scheme. I think that's yeah, the, uh, the the broadest universe available.
1: <laughs> the extended Marvel universe, something. I mean, you're clearly hitting the uh, the long tail of of names here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So the the second one, which is it starts to get more advanced, but Histrix which, I don't know, sounds like something my doctor gives me a cream for, but it's meant for a uh, circuit breaker. So this idea of, you know, as I have more and more services, you know, I, Kote, you're probably familiar with this idea of, you know, you look at nines, everyone wants five nines, three nines, whatever. If, if I have, you know, they have the example on their webpage, I think it's 4D services with three nines. You know, on on the, you know, even four nines, you can look at that and go, yeah, that's pretty good. But all of a sudden when you multiply 40 times 999, all of a sudden I'm still taking a couple hours of downtime a month because you have to do the aggregate of all of those services if my app uses them all. like Individually, it's great if you're online all the time. Collectively, that's not very good when I'm consuming all these services that individually still have downtime. So how do I prevent cascading failures is the term. How do I make sure that if my customer record service is offline, everything doesn't crash to a halt? And so the idea of Hystrix or a Circuit Breaker is I'm going to make sure that when I detect an unhealthy service, I kind of open the circuit. I always do that wrong. I think I open the circuit. And therefore, traffic might not go there anymore. And I have a fallback service, or I might just return some cache data. And then over time, it slowly closes the circuit, I think, and lets some data come through. And then if it's healthy, it opens it all back up again or closes it. I, I don't have electronics well. But it follows that model. But the idea is, how do I make sure that a bad service gets quickly shut off so that my other things that might depend on it don't come crashing to a halt.
0: Yeah. You know, I I think it it took me a long time to figure out like why a circuit breaker is good. I mean Mm -hmm. the, the full picture of it, because it seems like obviously uh, you know, if, if it's going to spew a bunch of stuff that's going to bring down your system, you should turn that off. But then my thinking was always like, but then it doesn't work. Right. (laughs) Right. Like, like, you know, again, using the net the Netflix example, if, if, to greatly simplify, I'm sure, which is a much more complicated system. If, uh, if I go request, you know, episode six of strange things and it's broken, the circuit breaker, I guess, opens the circuit and I don't get my video. So it's broken. (laughs) But you know, on, on the other hand, I I think, I think the goal is that as you're saying, like, and you know, a lot of the problems, uh, especially performance problems you encounter in applications are due to like, cascading problems. And this thing happened over here that caused this to break. And there's a reason we have a whole like cult of root cause analysis. Cause you're always having to dig down to see what actually caused the problem. So the idea is if you, if to, to mix the metaphors and make it confusing, if you close off that service uh, mm-hmm. instead of, as you say, open it up, but if you close off that service, you hopefully can reduce the amount of like uh, things further up the stack or up screen, you know, issues that happen. And I think but you bring up i think a great i think for con- I mean, like very complicated distributed applications that are composing together multiple services, mm-hmm. this is probably a pattern that you want to use a lot more than in not so much non complicated but sort of like vertically integrated things where where you know there's single calls going down instead of multiple things that you're waiting on that could blow everything up for you right no but you made a
1: good point there specifically among well, many good points, of course, but you know there's a uh, a certain level of responsibility you take on now as a service consumer, because I can't just blindly assume your service is up all the time. I might need to have, you know, be able to handle cached results, or I need to be able to, you know, do something else. Histrix takes care of returning back data from a backup channel or things, but you can't just assume your endpoints are all, your dependencies are always online. And so even as a service developer, you do have to think a little bit differently.
0: Yeah. And, and I guess, I mean, I don't know if this actually fits in the best way of doing it, but I guess you could also have like service degradation as a sort of a pattern, right? Like I can't serve up the HD video, but I can serve up the 480 video <laughs> or, or, yeah, or as whatever. as a consumer,
1: that's probably better, right? I mean, yeah. there's, there's a fine line. I think we all know that I would rather have no internet than slow internet sometimes. I mean, there's certain cases where a degraded <laughs> experience is actually worse than nothing. But... Hmm. If you do it right, then sure, you know maybe I don't get the weird subtitles at the bottom or the options, but my video playback still works. I can tolerate that. Or if again I'm a banking customer online or I'm a, you know an e- a storefront, maybe I can't show you recommended products because that service is offline, but I shouldn't fail to draw the page because I can't show recommended products. So I I think it's just thinking of these components differently.
0: And and then once again, as with all of these things, or most all of them, the other part that makes it valuable, especially when integrated into a, a full platform is you have the, the actual monitoring and management stuff on it. Right. So, so whether whether it's like a developer or or i'm putting this in air quotes a devops or an operator or whoever they can actually see this these things happening so they can try to go fix them and you can get a lot of information especially if you throw in something like uh like zipkin or spring sleuth you can start to like figure out like if something's going wrong and let's see if i get this right a circuit opens Anyways, (laughs) what, anyways, <laughs> you, uh, you shut down a problem. You can start going in there and tracing out like what problems you might have and, and things like that. So that the, the other thing built into most of these tools is once uh, something goes wrong, here's, here's a whole bunch of information you would need to try to fix it in production, not just, mm-hmm. you know, dump out a stack trace and go uh, file a ticket and have someone fix it one day. Right.
1: No, it's good. The uh, The show notes for this will be Kote and Richard talk electronics. And, you know, when the uh, zombie apocalypse
0: hits, I will not sign up for electrician. That's right. Two, two, two software marketers walk into a radio shack. <laughs> just you can imagine what happens next. Uh, good times. Uh,
1: so, yeah, I mean, hopefully also the gist you're getting as we talk through these is that, you know, the, the sort of old client server model of I just build up a, a web app and I deploy it. You know, that is very different in this world of a lot of distribution components that might span on-prem and cloud or cross-cloud and I've got different availability and you know everything has gotten more complex so that you can be more agile. It's just weird probably sometimes it seems counterintuitive but you know agility is, is hard to create and to do it you end up using services like this which give you a lot of awesome controls but complexity is going up. The, uh, the next one is Ribbon which you'll find out in Spring Cloud, it's not in Spring Cloud Services, but part of Spring Cloud, this is client-side load balancing. So this is the idea of, again, integrating with the registry and others so that it can actually do client-based load balancing within your web app or whatever you've got. So it's actually making some of those decisions about where to go. So it's just an, an interesting model versus just having a pure uh, client, server-based load balancer It gives you some additional flexibility for how to target workloads.
0: Right. And and my, my assumption is like, uh, this is the kind of thing where having the... Uh, having the health information from something like eureka is helpful because then speaking of ai or or like uh, very simple ai you can start to make some analysis of who you might call reliably and stuff like that i mean i i assume that in most distributed systems like this it's just sort of like that's nice let's just do round robin <laughs> like like that exactly that seems and, to and be sometimes what
1: happens that is fine
0: but it is nice to know you've got that local
1: flexibility and not relying on the the single server for all of it The uh, next one to talk about, Zool, referencing, of course, Ghostbusters, is uh, it's a nice kind of reverse proxy or an edge server. So this is something where, again, they send billions and billions of requests through this on a given day. But the idea of just giving you some more flexibility for routing and, and things at the edge. So I haven't used this as much myself yet. This is one I haven't stood up. But the idea of giving you a way to, I think, not really expose a lot of your back-end services, even to the microservices thing, and then have this sort of front door edge router that sends things. I don't think it's quite a load balancer, but the idea is it's a smarter routing engine.
0: Mm, That makes sense.
1: Mm. Uh, The one that I'm kind of excited about, and we talked about this at Spring 1, we should include some links from uh, Spring 1, but Spinnaker. So this is what Netflix built for, you know, it's open source. Of course, all this is open source, but multi-cloud deployment. So the idea of I've got my package... And I want to go deploy this app to Amazon, or I want to deploy it to Cloud Foundry, or I want to deploy it to Azure. All of that through the same tool. Pretty exciting stuff. So there were some good demos at Spring 1. This just got baked into Spring Cloud, I think, last week as its first milestone. So you can just add some annotations and, and get some Spinnaker apps stood up. So pretty cool stuff. We're actually going to have this deployable on Cloud Foundry itself. So the Spinnaker service would run on PCF. So you're kind of using Cloud Foundry to deploy to Cloud Foundry. Don't let your head hurt on that one. But it's a pretty kind of exciting way to have these multi-cloud deployment tools that is pretty good stuff. So that's that's one you should definitely look at if you're looking at using more than one cloud environment.
0: Yeah, you know, this 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 reminds me of something. I, I need to go watch the videos from uh, Spring One Platform on this. But I began to, the, to To understand that multi cloud means not only multiple, uh, infrastructure clouds you're using, but -hmm. within a large organization, you have multiple of your own clouds that you want to deploy to, you know, whether they're, you know, development and staging and all these different environments or geographic. And I think more and more when you look at the, the pivotal customer, pivotal cloud foundry customer base, uh, they're in this situation where they, they have multiple clouds that they own. And so they need to have consistent ways of deploying and using them, which is a whole other angle on multi-cloud that I think most people don't think about at first.
1: Yeah, no, agreed. I think that's uh, it's a good use case as well. So the last one I wanted to point out to you, Mr. Cote, is uh, Atlas. So this is for time series data. As you might imagine, Netflix collects a uh, lot of data And so how do I use this for operational purposes? How am I using this to trace? You know, this is something, if you've seen us talk about Zipkin and Spring Cloud Sleuth, this isn't using Atlas at this point, but the idea of doing distributed tracing, saying how am I uncovering where I have latency, following the call path, as you said, with these vertical apps as well, so that I can see this call stack and where am I hitting latency? Maybe I uncover that a service is being called all the time and it's not supposed to be. Or, you know, it's a great tool to have, to be able to uncover these usage patterns because frankly i can't predict how my services are going to be used anymore when i've got this microservices world i'm having a lot of composable apps i have a lot of different interaction patterns and so being able to do real distributed tracing is huge so atlas is kind of what netflix oss offers and again you can download and run that when you're using kind of a spring cloud foundry world we like spring cloud sleuth based on
0: zipkin which came out of twitter so that's that's the uh, the stack of everything in there, huh?
1: Yeah, there's another probably dozen and a half of them, and I encourage you to read the Netflix uh, tech blog, which is always fantastic. Techblog.netflix.com, which has some great stuff. And now one question could be, well, sheesh, I'm a Node developer, you know, I'm a .NET developer. Why do Spring Cloud people have all the fun? Well, you know, hey, Netflix uses a lot of Java because that's what big boy companies use, but at the same time. You know, if I'm a .NET developer, we've actually been incubating the Steeltoe stuff, which you may have heard us mention. We talked about a little bit at Spring 1 as well, which these are kind of connectors for .NET apps into Spring Cloud. So whether I'm doing Eureka or Hystrix or the config server, I can do that from .NET apps. So now I can be doing circuit breakers for my .NET apps, or I could be looking up the registry from .NET apps. So kind of cool to make .NET also a first-class citizen in there. And then when I was trolling through The uh, JavaScript NPM repository, which is their node package manager repository, saw some ones I don't think they're from Netflix themselves, but people had built some JavaScript libraries to talk to these endpoints as well, which is cool because many of these are just HTTP endpoints of which we've wrapped up some good Java goodness to make these look like local calls. But nothing prevents me from having these other apps that call these endpoints and cache data locally and what have you. So Mm. it's a pretty open framework. Obviously, all the love has gone into Java, but if I'm using JavaScript or Node.js or .NET, you know, you can you can party on this data.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's a good uh, a good signal that uh, you're reaching some uh, wide adoption and thus long term stability <laughs> for for Absolutely. for a system like this is that you have more and more language support, especially if you uh, jump into uh, .NET land and JavaScript. You're, you know, as I think I think ensuring that'll be a good test for people to pay attention to seeing that those those are well done then uh then having you know i don't know three different language pools supported is always uh is always healthy and then actually used well as always this has been pivotal conversations you can find the freshest most latest episodes over in soundcloud if you go to soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations all one long word. You can practice how to spell conversations. Also, we put the uh, the show notes on the, our blog, which you can get to uh, at blog.pivotal.io. And uh, I would encourage you, uh, and I'm sure Richard would as well, if you like this, it's uh, it's always nice to share it with your friends, whether it's uh, in computer land or, or in person. And if you want to take the time to go into iTunes and leave us a review or a star rating, that's always also helpful. And if you have any feedback on any of this stuff, feel free to email us at podcast at pivotal.io, or you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm Kote, C-O-T-E, and Richard is R. soroder, which is spelled pretty much how it sounds. <laughs> and there you go. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Thanks, all.